0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come, Follow Me.
1: We also dive into the history and cultures of the text.
0: Thanks for taking the time to share
1: and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, talkingscripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in section 129 through 132. And if
0: you know anything about 132, you know it's heavy. And we will get into plural marriage. But first, let's jump into 129, which is a key on how to recognize an angel is from heaven or from the other place when he appears unto you. The answer is you offer him your hand, and if he refuses to shake it, then you know it's a premortal spirit that can't shake your physical hand. If he shakes it and you feel it, that's a resurrected being. And if he shakes it and you don't feel it, then you know it's the devil with a spirit trying to grab your physical hand and not able to do so.
1: And I would just throw one more thing out there, and that would be an individual who is a just man made perfect. He or she could come and deliver the message, and they're not going to shake your hand, and they're not going to take it when you offer them your hand. So reading from the text of section 129, verse 3, 6, and 7, we get the following. Secondly, the spirits of just men made perfect, they who are not resurrected, but inherit the same glory. Skipping over to verse six. If he be the spirit of a just man made perfect, he will come in his glory, for that is the only way he can appear. Ask him to shake hands with you, but he will not move, because it is contrary to the order of heaven for a just man to deceive, but he will still deliver his message. And so that's another option of an individual that would come from the other side of the veil and deliver a message, no shaking of hands, simply just the message. So next we're going to get into section 130. In late 1838 and early 1839, as the saints had been driven from Missouri, they began to settle 20 miles east of Nauvoo in Hancock County And in January of 1839, a branch of the church was organized there. It was called Ramus because I guess that's the Latin word for branch. And so by 1840 in July, the branch had actually become a stake. So the town of Ramus was officially founded the following September, and it's in this place where Joseph Smith is going to give some instruction relative to a sermon that Orson Hyde gave where he used 1 John 3, 2 and John 14, 23. And Joseph later wrote that he offered some corrections to Elder Hyde's sermon, and according to the historical record, they were thankfully received. So I'm just going to read these two verses so that we can kind of get the idea of what section 130 is talking about. So if you go to 1 John 3, 2, it reads as follows. Now we are the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we shall know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. So that's referring to the Savior coming when he comes again, and then we'll be like him. And there's a great picture that we have in the show notes that really illustrates this beautifully. I mean, this picture encapsulates 1 John 3 2 to me perfectly. And then also, John 14 23 reads as follows. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. So, understanding the context of those verses helps to unlock some of the things that Joseph Smith is discussing in this section, specifically as we relate to the kind of being that God is and that he is making his abode with us. It says in verse one, when the Savior shall appear, we shall see that he is a man like ourselves. I think it's important for us as Latter day Saints to understand that in Christianity, typically the references that refer to God and where Jesus is speaking to his father, in most instances, most of Christians look at that as a metaphor. But how do we look at it? We don't. In fact,
0: the very last two verses of this section are very declarative of the Latter-day Saint faith. We believe that the Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's. That sentence right there sets so much apart the Latter-day Saint theology from Christianity. We believe that our relationship with God is not creator, created, but father and child. And that he has a body of flesh and bones, and the Son does also, but the Holy Ghost has not a body of flesh and bones, but is a personage of spirit. And not only that, but section 130 verse 2 describes the life that God lives. It is not such a far-fetched life as the one we know. Joseph declared that that same sociality which exists among us here will exist among us there, only it will be coupled with eternal glory, which glory we do not now enjoy that there is a strong connection between mortal life in a fallen world and eternal life in a glorified celestial world. It's a similar type of existence that we have friends and we associate with each other and that there's parent and child and that there's growing up, that that same sociality which exists here in mortality is the goal that we're trying to achieve, that we're trying to get to a place where families continue. That increase continues. Life here on earth is a picture, though it's in a fallen world, it's a picture of life in the higher realms of the celestial kingdom.
1: I really think a lot of this is going to come down to the 7th century BC in Judaism or in Israelite religion, where we took away God having a body, the anthropomorphic nature of God, as the sea of Christianity blended with the sand of Greek philosophy, the idea of having a body became difficult for some of these Christians because it didn't meld with their philosophy. And so over time, God essentially lost his body by the time you get to the fourth century. And so all the anthropomorphic stuff going on in the Old Testament, a lot of that language has been softened by later thinkers and theologians. And Joseph is sitting in the tradition of the ancient saying, no, God is a man. His Son, Jesus Christ, is a man. And so to me, that's one of the great truths of eternity, the nature of who God is. And for many Latter-day Saints, this is very basic stuff. But I think it's just good to know that we do sit in that position of the ancients, and it is different than traditional Christianity today. And I remind you of the conversation
0: that Jesus had with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, where they argued about where we should worship, And Jesus said, ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship. Therefore, salvation is of the Jews, is what he said to the Samaritan woman back then. And here we sit lovingly, tenderly, say to the world, ye worship, ye know not what. But we know what we worship. Heavenly Father is our eternal Father. And he's married. He has a wife. We have a mother. We have a heavenly father and a heavenly mother who are raising us like parents do. And that same sociality which exists among us here will exist among us there, only it will be coupled with eternal glory. And Joseph is presenting truth that very few people have ever considered. This is a tremendous glimpse into the eternities. Now, Notice what he talks about next is where does God reside, the place that God resides, and he describes it as a sea of glass, that the earth is an enormous Urim and Thummim. Now, the exact translation of Urim and Thummim means, Mike? Yeah, lights and perfections. So God lives on a place called lights and perfections, that God's planet is full of light and has been perfected and that we're trying to achieve that state and live on that
1: same planet, our own Urim and Thummim. It's probably pretty hard to describe some of these visions that Joseph has, and John sees this in the book of Revelation in the fourth chapter. This stuff's going on in some of the Enoch literature that's outside of the biblical text. In the show notes, we put some really good quotes from the book of Enoch, and some of the stuff that Margaret Barker has done with this. Essentially, it's a vision, and it's a vision of the Holy of Holies. And this sea of glass, one of the ways I like to interpret this is that the sea is an Old Testament reference for chaos. I don't know if it's literal, because I haven't seen it, but I'm okay if it's metaphorical. And so by the sea becoming glass, the chaos has been conquered. So that's really good. Yeah. Now, the Lord reveals to Joseph Smith more details about the Civil War. He mentions the difficulties which will cause bloodshed in verse 12. And then there's another question Joseph discusses in section 130, verse 14. Joseph says, I was once praying very earnestly to know the time of the coming of the Son of Man when I heard a voice repeat the following, Joseph, my son, if thou livest until thou art 85 years old, thou shalt see the face of the Son of Man. Therefore, let this suffice and trouble me no more on this matter. I was left thus without being able to decide whether the coming referred to the beginning of the millennium or to some previous appearing or whether I should die and thus see his face. So Joseph doesn't know. Essentially, the Lord's saying, Joseph, I'm not going to tell you. But know this, that in early church history, there were many saints that thought maybe Jesus is coming in 1890. You see, Joseph would have been 85 in 1890. And it's interesting that in 1890 is when the manifesto was given causing the end of the practice of plural marriage. And so just know that as you go through history and you look at some of the decisions and the way the saints spoke, they took these prophecies as perhaps that the Lord would come in 1890. The way I read them, obviously, is the Lord saying, Joseph, I'm not going to tell you. But that wasn't the only way it was read. Right.
0: Which now leads us to a trilogy of wonderful verses. 18 and 19... 20 and 21, and then 22 and 23. 18 and 19 talks about whatever principle of intelligence we attain to in this life, it will rise with us in the resurrection. If a person gains more knowledge and intelligence in this life, they will have so much the advantage in the world to come. So if you have studied oxidative phosphorylation in this world, and you can diagram the Krebs cycle... Good for you because someday everyone will need to know that, and when they're in biology class, you can go over and take some language class. But it's going to be an advantage when that information is needed in the eternities. If you do know oxidative phosphorylation and can diagram the Krebs cycle, you're going to be in music class. I can't even say what you're – I can't even say those words. <laughs> so learn. Learn all that we can learn because whatever truth you know – will gods have to know all truth, and eventually, I'm going to have to come to know all truth. So whatever truth I learn in this world, it gives me an advantage. I don't have to learn it in the next world. So if you put off all learning to the next life, then those who have learned in this life will have an advantage over those who have not. Now, those of you who didn't have an opportunity for learning don't need to stress. We'll all have the opportunity to grow and know everything that we need to know in the eternities.
1: I like to play with the word pairs. So you have knowledge and intelligence tied to diligence and obedience. And I don't know if this is purposeful, but intelligence is light and truth. And that's obtained in my in my word pairing with obedience and knowledge is through diligence. Now we want both, but the adversary has knowledge with no intelligence, but the Savior has both. And so there's something about obedience when it comes to understanding light and truth and gaining wisdom. So it's kind of a neat verse. Yeah.
0: Then the next pair is wonderful, that there's a law irrevocably decreed in heaven, that when we obtain any blessing, it is by obedience to the law upon which it is predicated. You receive blessings based on your obedience. If you obey the law, you get that blessing. He is no respecter of persons. And I think that's a great commentary on who he is, that anyone who
1: obeys the law gets the blessing in this life or in the next. Yeah. So big picture on this section. I think this section is all temple. I mean, we've got the great sea of glass and fire, and in the Enoch literature, that's all holy of holies stuff going on. You've got the new name, the key word, the white stone. You've got who the nature of God is, and when we shall see Him, we shall see that we are like Him. That's clearly talking about coming into His presence. The end of the section talks about the Father's body, which I think is significant. And then verse 23, about receiving the Holy Ghost, and this idea of knowledge— and obedience, and law. So big picture, I think if we read section 130 through the lens of the temple, we see things happening on a different level. And you can tell what's on Joseph's mind, where Joseph's mind was while he's in Nauvoo.
0: He is preparing the saints for the endowment and the truths that are revealed in the temple, which now leads us to one of the crowning blessings of all blessings, the sealing of families. I remind you that the essence of the Abrahamic covenant as taught way back in Abraham, as repeated in every dispensation, is to bless the families of the earth with the gospel, salvation, and eternal life. The crowning blessing of the gospel is to seal families for eternity. So the question on the table is, how do you make anything, let alone a marriage, last for eternity? And if ever there is something weighty that should be the heart and soul of our life and our focus, it's how do I make my family, and particularly my marriage, last for eternity. So let's talk about the law. We're going to come back to 131 in a minute, but turn with me to 132, and let's go to verse 7, and here is the law. Now, it's given in very legal ease— But I want to show the beauty of its simplicity. So let's read it as it appears, and then let's pull out of it the simple requirements of how do you make anything eternal? The Lord says, Verily I say unto you, the conditions of this law are these, all covenants, contracts, bonds, obligations, oaths, vows, performances, connections, associations, or expectations that are not—and then he's going to give us two requirements— then jumping to the end of the parentheses, are of no efficacy, virtue, or force in and after the resurrection from the dead. For all contracts that are not made unto this end have an end when men are dead. Very few people in this world have the authority to bind anything outside of this world on us. I will owe no mortgage payments to my mortgage company in the afterlife. My mortgage ends as far as I'm concerned when I die. That contract has no bearing on me in the afterlife. No one on this planet can bind me beyond this life unless they get authority from God. Therefore, requirement number one is that I have to perform the ordinance by someone who has the authority. I have to go into a holy temple of God where there are ordinance workers who hold the authority to bind beyond death. So there's requirement number one. I have to marry in the right place by the right authority. Now, there's a major difference between a temple marriage and an eternal marriage. Just because I comply with number one doesn't mean I have an expectation of an eternal marriage. The second, what I would list second, is actually stated first, as if to say, I think this is the most important part of the covenant. It has to be sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit of promise is a testator. He's a witnesser. He will witness whether or not the couple lived the covenant. So the two requirements to make something eternal is, number one, do it by the authority of God that has power beyond the grave. And then number two, keep the covenant. In other words, make it eternal. How you treat it is what will make it eternal, much more so than the actual ordinance itself. Now, don't get me wrong. I do not mean to diminish number one, but number one is easily solved. We are doing that for the dead. Couples who lived hundreds of years ago, we're able to go into the temple and formalize number one. You now have checked off number one. We have performed the ordinance by the right authority. That one is easy to accomplish. What is not so easy to accomplish is to live the covenant well enough that the Holy Ghost seals it and says, these guys made it eternal. It's how we treat each other that really determines if it's going to be an eternal thing or not. I share with you one of the most influential general conference talks I have ever heard on the subject. It was given as Elder F. Burton Howard was given emeritus status, and he is looking back on his time and saying, let me teach you some of the most important things I can say before I am released as a 70. And he spoke of eternal marriage, and he said the following. Most of all, I think eternal marriage cannot be achieved without a commitment to make it work. Most of what I know about this I have learned from my companion. We have been married for almost 47 years now. From the beginning, she knew what kind of marriage she wanted. We started as poor college students, but her vision for our marriage was exemplified by a set of silverware. As is common today, when we married, she registered with a local department store. Instead of listing all the pots and pans and appliances we needed and hoped to receive, she chose a different course. She asked for silverware. She chose a pattern and the number of place settings and listed knives, forks, and spoons on the wedding registry and nothing else. No towels, no toasters, no televisions, just knives, forks, and spoons. The wedding came and went. Our friends and our parents' friends gave gifts. We departed for a brief honeymoon and decided to open the presents when we returned. When we did so, we were shocked. There was not a single knife or fork in the lot. We joked about it and went on with our lives. Two children came along while we were in law school. We had no money to spare, but when my wife worked as a part-time election judge, or when someone gave her a few dollars for her birthday, she would quietly set it aside, and when she had enough, she would go to town and buy a fork or a spoon. It took us several years to accumulate enough pieces to use them. When we finally had service for four, we began to invite some of our friends for dinner. Before they came, we would have a little discussion in the kitchen. Which utensils would we use? The battered and mismatched stainless or the special silverware? In those early days, I would often vote for the stainless. It was easier. You could just throw it in the dishwasher after the meal and it took care of itself. The silver, on the other hand, was a lot of work. My wife had it hidden away under the bed where it could not be found easily by a burglar. She had insisted that I buy a tarnish-free cloth to wrap it in. Each piece was in a separate pocket and it was no easy task to assemble all the pieces. When the silver was used, it had to be hand-washed and dried so that it would not spot and put back in the pockets so that it would not tarnish and wrapped up carefully and hidden again so it would not get stolen. If any tarnish was discovered, I was sent to buy silver polish, and together we carefully rubbed the stains away. Over the years, we added to the set, and I watched with amazement how she cared for the silver. I noticed that the silverware never went to many of the war dinners she cooked, or never accompanied the many meals she made and sent to others who were sick or needy. It never went on picnics, and it never went camping. In fact, it never went anywhere. And as time went by, it didn't even come to the table very often. The time came when we were called to go on a mission. I arrived home one day and was told that I had to rent a safe deposit box for the silver. She didn't want to take it with us, she didn't want to leave it behind, and she didn't want to lose it. Now the point. For years, I thought she was just a little bit eccentric. And then one day I realized that she had known for a long time something that I was just beginning to understand. If you want something to last forever, you treat it differently. Let me say that again. If you want something to last forever, you treat it differently. You shield it you protect it, you never abuse it, you don't expose it to the elements, you don't make it common or ordinary. If it becomes tarnished, you lovingly polish it until it gleams like new. It becomes special because you make it so, and it grows more beautiful and precious as time goes on. Eternal marriage is just like that. We need to treat it just that way, end of quote. Some of our marriages are not going to be eternal simply because we don't treat it as an eternal thing. But if you really want it to last forever, you treat it differently. You you act like you want it to last forever. You shield it. You protect it. You keep the covenant involved how you treat each other, how you care for each other day in and day out. This is why Elder Bruce R. McConkie wrote in Mormon Doctrine that the two most important things that any Latter-day Saint will ever do in this world are, number one, marry the right person in the right place by the right authority, and then number two, keep that covenant so that the promise lifts us and makes us eternal. So what the Lord's going to do now is give us three scenarios. Scenario number one is that you never check box number one and you never check box number two. And I would emphasize that you never check. It's not a matter of, did you marry outside the temple when you first got married and then you're doomed for eternity? That's not what the Lord is trying to say. Now, there is great wisdom in marrying the temple at the very beginning, but Box number one can be checked like the dead. We're checking that box for the dead hundreds of years after they lived. So, again, I, I don't want anyone to listen to this and feel gloomy because when they first got married, it wasn't in the temple. But if you never check box number one and you never check box number two, listen to the description. And I don't know how to make this ungloomy. This is kind of gloomy when you realize the ramifications. If you never ever in eternity, check box number one, what your eternal state is going to be. But let's read it. Verse 15, "'Therefore, if a man marry him a wife in the world, and he marry her not by me nor by my word, so he doesn't go to the temple, it's not done by the Lord's authority.'" And he covenant with her so long as he is in the world and she with him. Their marriage and covenant are not a force when they are dead and when they're out of the world. Therefore, they are not bound by any law when they're out of the world. So if grandma married grandpa anywhere but in the temple and now they're dead, they're not married. They have no expectation of marriage because the ceremony was not performed by someone who has authority beyond death. Verse 16, therefore, when they're out of this world, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are appointed angels in heaven, which angels are ministering servants to minister to those who are worthy of a far more and exceedingly and an eternal weight of glory. For these angels did not abide my law. Never. They never checked box number one. Therefore, they cannot be enlarged, but remain. And I think these are the two most depressing words in the scriptures. If you never check box number one, you will remain separately and singly without exaltation in your saved condition to all eternity.
1: And yet at the same time, we we know that Heavenly Father has those blessings in store for us if we don't have the opportunity to get married or
0: something beyond our control. No one loses the blessing because they ran out of time.
1: I mean, the compensatory grace of Jesus Christ will make that blessing available to all who were deprived of it through no blame of their own. Yeah, this has to
0: be those who choose not to check the box.
1: And I think, Bryce, it's okay that we acknowledge God honors that agency. There are individuals who will choose that life, and I don't think necessarily it will be depressing for them. We've talked about this with Section 76. They will enjoy the glory of with which they've received. And so I think, once again, we can look at this and say, God is honoring that agency on their part. I think that's another way to look at it. I think to you, it's sad. It's, it's gloomy because you have joy and rejoicing in your posterity. In fact, congratulations, you're going to be a grandpa again. That's really exciting. How many was this going to be? Uh, number five. Five grandchildren. I mean, Bryce, you're a living example that being a father and having children and grandchildren brings joy. So to you... It's depressing. But I also see God in heaven saying, hey... Not everyone chooses. Right, right. And those who choose not to check
0: that box have a kingdom awaiting for them that will be a kingdom of glory, and they'll enjoy being there. But those of you who want to make family eternal, we need to make sure we check that first box. Perform the ordinance by the authority that lasts for eternity. Now, the second scenario... I think it's vague enough to apply to many different situations. The way I read it is an LDS couple who got married in the temple, but they don't live the covenant. That's how I read verse 18. You may read it differently, but this is the couple who has a temple marriage, but not working on an eternal marriage. In the imagery of Elder Howard, they're not taking care of the silver, they're not treating it differently. So verse 18, verily I say unto you, if a man marry a wife and make a covenant with her for time and for all eternity, if that covenant is not by me or by my word, which is my law, which is not sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. So it wasn't sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise through him whom I have appointed, anointed and appointed under this power. So this is checking box number one, but not checking box number two. This is when you've gone to the temple and performed the ordinance, but you don't live the covenant. You don't treat it special. You make it common instead. These are those who have a temple marriage, but not an eternal marriage. The Lord says, it is not valid, neither a force when they're out of the world, because they are not joined by me, saith the Lord, neither by my word. When they're out of the world, it cannot be received there because the angels and the gods are appointed there by whom they cannot pass. They cannot, therefore, inherit my glory from my house as a house of order, saith the Lord. Now, scenario number three is verse 19 and 20. It's what happens when I check both boxes. I marry in the temple by the authority of the priesthood, which can bind beyond the grave. And then I do my very best to keep that covenant. Listen to the promise. Again, verily I say unto you, if a man marry a wife by my word, which is my law, and by the new and everlasting covenant, and it is sealed unto them by the Holy Spirit of promise, and I want to interject, they kept their covenant. Then it shall be said unto them, Ye shall come forth in the first resurrection, and if it be after the first resurrection, in the next resurrection, and shall inherit thrones and kingdoms, principalities and powers, dominions, all heights and depths, then shall it be written in the Lamb's book of life that he shall commit no murder whereby to shed innocent blood. And if ye abide in my covenant and commit no murder whereby to shed innocent blood... It shall be done unto them all things whatsoever hath my my servant hath put upon them. I'm going to pause there. It is fascinating that in this scenario, it talks about not murdering. I think, here's how I read it, that within the covenant, mistakes are fixable. My wife married a very imperfect person, and so did I. And as we try to keep that covenant, we're going to make mistakes. But the covenant allows for mistakes and growths and repentance and saying you're sorry and fixing what you broke. Sin doesn't void the covenant. Only the most grievous sin voids the covenant. I think that's why verse 19 goes to the extreme of sin. As long as it's not murder, everything else can be fixable. It doesn't mean everything else is condoned. It means everything else can be fixable. It's, it, it doesn't void the contract. Repent, forgive each other, work as a team, and walk together. When the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve issued the proclamation on the family, they stated nine principles that make family successful. Principle number three and principle number four are very significant to me. What makes family successful and eternal is repentance and forgiveness. Temple marriage doesn't mean you're perfect. You're going to make mistakes, but that's when you repent and you apologize and you move forward together and you forgive each other. I love the language here because it just seems to suggest to me that this is a couple growing together. Now I'm going to pick it up in verse 19. It shall be done unto them all things whatsoever my servant hath put on them in time and through all eternity, and shall be of full force when they are out of the world. They shall pass by the angels and the gods which are set there to their exaltation and glory in all things as hath been sealed upon their heads, which glory shall be a fullness and a continuation of the seeds forever. Now, that takes us back to section 131. Joseph declared in 131, in the celestial glory, there are three heavens or degrees. So there's three degrees of glory, and then within the top, there's three degrees. Could there be three degrees in the other two? Perhaps, maybe there's nine total places you can go to. In the celestial glory, there are three heavens or degrees. In order to obtain a highest a man must enter into this order of the priesthood, meaning the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. If he does not, he cannot obtain it. If you never check box number one, you cannot obtain the highest degree of the celestial kingdom. You may enter into the others. You can be a celestial person, but not exalted. You have to check box number one and keep the covenant if you want to go to the highest degree of the celestial kingdom. Verse four, he may enter into the other degrees, but that is the end of his kingdom. He cannot have an increase. Now, Joseph Smith declared exactly what that means. What does it mean to have an increase? He said the following. Except a man and his wife enter into an everlasting covenant and be married for eternity while in this probation by the power and authority of the holy priesthood, they will cease to increase when they die. That is, they will not have any children after the resurrection. But those who are married by the power and authority of the priesthood in this life and continue without committing the sin against the Holy Ghost, in other words, they keep the covenant, will continue to increase and have children in the celestial glory. So not only does marriage continue, but procreation and giving birth continue in the eternities. Which is wonderful news for any couple who are not able to have children here in mortality. They will have children in the eternities. Increase continues in the highest degree of the celestial kingdom. Families and family joy continue in the eternities. Every one of us have the opportunity to make an eternal family. This is why we do the work for the dead. We're checking that box so that those couples who live the covenant and treat each other like they are eternal companions— They're the ones that check box number two. They inherit the celestial kingdom. They continue to have children throughout the eternities. And if we go back to section 132 and read verse 20, they shall be gods because they have no end. Therefore, they shall be from everlasting to everlasting because they continue. They shall be above all because all things are subject unto them then shall they be gods because they have all power and the angels are subject unto them. Now that should be the focus of our lives. How do I make my family and especially my marriage last for eternity? And I think that's the focus of this section. Now, that being said, the rest of section 132 is going to address Plural marriage. Joseph Smith is going to be commanded to live plural marriage. A lot of people are going to struggle with this. This really is the reason he's going to be killed, right, Mike? This is the heart and soul of why they thirst for his blood. It's plural marriage.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's living this in Nauvoo. He's introducing this to select members of the church and there are individuals, the Laws and the Fosters and the Higbies and others, who are struggling with this, and they want to make it known because the main population of Nauvoo doesn't know what's going on. And so they put together a printing press, and they print one edition of the Nauvoo Expositor, which is released. And Joseph Smith is on the city council. He's the mayor. And the city council, once the Nauvoo Expositor comes out, they, decide, they see it as a threat to his life. Yeah. And so they, they see it as a public nuisance and a threat to his life and they command it to be destroyed. Yeah. They destroy the, the press and the type. And and because of that, you know, Thomas Sharp, who's in a nearby community, he publishes that, you know, Joseph has taken too much power and it needs to be resolved with powder and ball. And we'll talk more about this when we get to the martyrdom. But the destruction of the Navio Expositor. And the arrest of Joseph Smith and then him coming to Carthage is really what brings this about. Now, my take on plural marriage and trying to be Joseph and running Nauvoo at this time, it must have been incredibly difficult. And the pressure he was under must have been, I I, I just can't, I can't even imagine what it must have been like to be Joseph.
0: Now, before we get into the details, I just want to remind everyone, God is willing to give omnipotent power to his children. But that requires a testing. Abraham wanted a son so badly, and as soon as he had one, the Lord asked him to offer it as a sacrifice. That must have been an enormous test of his heart. He wasn't actually required to do it. It was a, would you be willing to? And as soon as he showed the Lord he was willing to, he was stopped. A rich young ruler who had a lot of money, wanted to follow Jesus. And Jesus did the same thing. I'm going to test your heart. Are you willing to do what I ask so that I can give you all that I have? And the young man was not willing. Therefore, he couldn't have the power that God was offering him. He wouldn't use it appropriately. It is my testimony that Joseph and some of these early brethren and sisters were tested. The test of Abraham. I do not believe there is any other reason to practice plural marriage. I think all of the reasons people give as to why the saints did it really don't hold water. There was no other reason to do it other than the fact that the Lord commanded it. Now, why he commanded it, I don't know. It certainly was a test of Joseph's heart. It was a test of the early church's heart. And then I see the arm of Abraham coming down to slay Isaac under the administration of Wilford Woodruff. We're willing to obey. We're willing to obey everything that you ask us. And then the Lord said, okay, never mind. And then we have since ended plural marriage.
1: Or or you could say, okay, it's enough. It's It's sufficient.
0: It's sufficient. Yeah. It is no longer an appropriate offering for the Latter-day Saints. And so we ended it. I believe this was a test of Abraham then, and it is today. And you can look at it two ways. You can say, I can't believe I belong to a church that practiced plural marriage. Or you can say, I
1: belong to a church that will do whatever God commands. Yeah, I mean, Bryce, the first one you just said, I can't believe I belong to a church that practice plural marriage. I mean, if you take that assessment and that's your position, then you have to radically rethink how you view the Bible. You because do. the bottom line is the Bible has this stuff going on. And so I'm not trying to be a defender of plural marriage, but yet if you get into the weeds of the Old Testament, there were some kind of Of plural marriage. Now, I don't think that means that the bulk of people that lived in the Old Testament time lived plural marriage. I don't think that at all. I think most of people lived, if they were married, they had one man and one wife. That's what I believe. But I also understand that these texts of the Old Testament were put together at the behest of the king. And many times the king had overseership of what these texts said, and I believe the Bible's edited. I believe it's not perfectly translated. I think as a Latter-day Saint, that's a safe position. And so knowing that and knowing what I know about royalty and antiquity, there was some plural marriage going on, at least among those circles, because they had wealth. And frankly, this isn't a stretch, because we read the same kind of thing happening in the Book of Mormon, where Jacob bewails the fact and says, we're not going that route. The right way is the current system, one man, one woman, for eternity. Absolutely. We put some slides in the show notes and excellent resources that you can go and read. There are so many books written on this, and the Gospel Topics essays are marvelous, especially to those of you that are new to this, that you've never really thought about it, or maybe it's been difficult for you and you just don't want to think about it. Uh, I, I totally understand. In fact, if you're in that position, I think we've hit the main points that are relevant today. I mean, you can just say, we're done. I'm not going to listen to the rest of the podcast. Joseph it's...
0: was commanded. He yeah. obeyed. It was hard. We stopped. So, Mike, maybe we should talk about the context.
1: What's the context of 132? This was given to Joseph on July 12th, 1843, in the morning. And the context of it is essentially Emma's upset about plural marriage. Now, she knows that it's happening. Hiram, he's recently been introduced to plural marriage Hiram Smith believes that if there's a revelation that's dictated by the Lord to Joseph, that that would soften Emma's heart. And that Hiram was going to take the revelation to Emma and talk to her about it. Yes. In fact, William Clayton, who was there in the room, wrote this down. That Hiram said, the doctrine is so plain, I can convince any reasonable person, a man or a woman, of its truth, purity, and heavenly origin. And Joseph said to Hiram, Hiram, I don't think you know Emma the way I do, but he'll do it. So he does. A lot of these things we're going to be talking about are going to be coming to us from the pen of William Clayton. At the time, he was about 30 years old, and he was Joseph Smith's personal secretary. And I would say that William Clayton is an excellent witness. We don't really know uh, when Joseph learned these principles, but he dictates the revelation to William Clayton, and then it was carefully reviewed and copied. So the context of this section is that it is a specific letter from Joseph to Emma and that it is a revelation from the Lord. Understanding this and understanding that it's not edited, I think, helps us as Latter-day Saints with some of the difficult language of this text, because there's frankly going to be some things in here that are very difficult. And as I've talked to, especially sisters in the church that have struggled with some of the language of this, and then once it's explained, it softens the message somewhat. You see, this was a letter to Emma. Now, when Hiram takes it to Emma, she gives him a rough talking to. She's not excited about it. And historical sources are messy on this. We think, I mean, there's different accounts, but on one account, Emma takes the tongs from the fire and she literally burns it in the in the fireplace, and the idea was that she could say then in future days that she never touched the revelation because she just took the tongs and she put it in the fire. That copy was destroyed, but copies were made, and those copies of this revelation were in the hands of Brigham Young and others, many others. And you can see this in the show notes if you want to go down the historical roads of this and when it was published, and there's books on this, but essentially just know that those copies uh, this revelation to Joseph were used by Brigham Young and later members of the church to teach plural marriage. And then later, when the RLDS church rises up and they are uh, counter uh, to what we're doing, essentially the RLDS church is headed by individuals in Joseph Smith's own family, and they have two main issues with our church. One of them is, is that the president of the church should be a direct descendant of Joseph, and the other one is that that we shouldn't practice plural marriage and that Joseph never taught it. Emma teaches her family that Joseph never taught this. And so this letter is used as a polemic against that movement. So, and, and this is difficult, but knowing scripture and how it's used, and especially as somebody who geeks out on the Old Testament, the Old Testament oftentimes has entire texts which are used by people of one position to say, we're this, we're not that. And it's a polemical text, meaning that it's pushing against an opposite view. And in fact, knowing the history of the New Testament, the reason why we have a New Testament is because the Marcionites were going around saying, this is scripture, not that. And so groups of men got together and said, we are going to put together these texts and we're going to canonize it, we're going to call it the New Testament, because this is Scripture, not that. So I just think understanding that this is the nature of Scripture, this is not just specific to section 132, we see this throughout all scriptural texts.
0: And this will become major issues when land is involved. There will be a lawsuit over the temple property in Missouri, and the lawsuit will come down to, well, which church really is Joseph's? And the question... Was Well, if Joseph practiced plural marriage, then the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Salt Lake is Joseph's church, and they have the rights to the property. But if Joseph did not practice plural marriage, then the reorganized church is Joseph's church, and they have the rights to the property. So this became a flaming political battle as to, did Joseph Smith practice plural marriage? Therefore, Brigham Young is the successful follower. Section 132 was later canonized by Brigham Young and others who held the position that Joseph did practice plural marriage, therefore, we are his legal descendants.
1: Yeah. The Temple Lot case is a dispute between two breakoffs of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. So the Hedrochites and the RLDS Church are having a dispute over this property. And this is where we send. Women who were married to the prophet Joseph, and they are deposed, and they testify under oath that they were indeed married to the Prophet Joseph. And the Temple Lot case is where we get so much information about the goings-on of Nauvoo, and the reason why is because no one was talking about it in Nauvoo. And so it's not until they're deposed and they have to give sworn testimony that we have so much information. So the Temple Lot case is a wealth of information about what's going on in Nauvoo, and we— The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the members of the church in Utah, we are supporting the position of those against the RLDS church, because their claim is that Joseph never practiced it, and that it's Brigham Young's doing. All that stuff swirling around in context. Now, the main question I get when it comes to this is, why? Or will I have to? Yeah, those are the two big ones. And so, in response to a letter received in 1912, Charles Penrose, the first president, he wrote the following... Question, is plural or celestial marriage essential to a fullness of glory in the world to come? Answer, celestial marriage is essential to a fullness of glory in the world to come as explained in the revelation concerning it, but it is not stated that plural marriage is essential. Those questions are answered so that it may not be truthfully claimed that we avoid them. So in other words, he's saying, I'm answering this so that people don't say that we're trying to avoid it. Another interesting story comes to us from the pen of Wilfred Woodruff. In his journal on February 12th, 1870, Wilfred Woodruff wrote down some words of Brigham Young. And he writes, quote, I spent the day in the council house and attended the school of the prophets. Speeches were made and Brigham Young stood up and said that there would be men saved in the celestial kingdom with one wife. Men saved in the celestial kingdom with many wives and some with no wife at all. Now, I don't know what to do with that quote, other than I think what we see is Brigham Young explaining that that plural marriage is not essential for exaltation. The challenge of introducing a principle as controversial as plural marriage is basically impossible to even overstate. A spiritual witness of its truthfulness allowed Joseph and other saints to accept the principle, but it was tough. A lot of members of the church today descend from these faithful Latter-day Saints who long ago lived this principle of plural marriage. Although members of the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints, we don't practice plural marriage anymore. Consistent with Joseph's teachings, the church does permit a man whose wife has died to be sealed to another woman when he remarries. Moreover, members are permitted to perform ordinances on behalf of deceased men and women who married more than once on earth, sealing them to all the spouses to whom they were legally married. And so essentially the precise nature of these relationships in the next life isn't known. And many family relationships will be sorted out in the next life. Latter-day Saints are encouraged to trust in our own wise Heavenly Father who loves his children and does all things for their growth and salvation. I personally believe in agency, and I believe in a God who honors agency. And so the way I look at this is, whatever the circumstance, in the next life, people will have their agency. I don't really see this as being forced on anyone, and I'm grateful for that. I think this causes a lot of people in the church anxiety to think that in heaven, am I going to be required to live this? No, we have modern prophets that have said that's not going to be a requirement, so we can just kind of take that off the table. Now, why was this commanded? I just want to address why simply based on the text. The Lord gives some reasons, and this is difficult reading because this was never edited. So many of the revelations of the Restoration have been edited, and understanding that it's not edited, I think, helps us as Latter-day Saints with some of the difficult language of this text. So go to section 132, verse 63. But if none other or either of the ten virgins, after she is espoused, shall be with another man, she has committed adultery, and she shall be destroyed. For they are given unto him to multiply and replenish the earth according to my commandment, to fulfill the promise which was given by my Father before the foundation of the world and for their exaltation in the eternal worlds, that they may bear the souls of men, for herein is the work of my Father, continued, that he may be glorified. I see five main reasons in this verse. I'm just going to list them. The Lord is going to state that the reasons why are to multiply and replenish the earth, number two, to fulfill the promise, number three, for their exaltation, the fourth reason that they may bear the souls of men, and the fifth reason that he may be glorified. Those are the five reasons that the Lord gives in the 63rd verse. Bryce's comment about it being a test is also stated by the Lord in verse 51. So if you go to verse 51, it says, I say unto you, a commandment I give unto my handmaid Emma Smith, your wife, whom I Have given unto you that she stay herself and partake not of that which I have commanded you to offer unto her. For I did it, saith the Lord, to quote, prove you all as I did Abraham, and that I might require an offering at your hand by covenant and sacrifice. Now there's a lot going on in verse 51, but for now we're just going to say that's one of the reasons. It's a test. And then finally, Jacob 2, verse 30, which says this, For if I will saith the Lord, raise up seed unto me, I will command my people. Otherwise, they shall hearken unto these things, meaning one man, one wife, married legally and lawfully according to God's law. So now, before I go any further, I just want to read this quote by Spinoza. And he says this, I have made a ceaseless effort not to ridicule, not to bewail, not to scorn human actions, but to understand them. And that's really my goal. My goal in this, as we discuss these things, is to not necessarily, I don't want to ridicule or judge, and I don't want to bewail. I just want to try to understand what was going on in Nauvoo, what was going on in Kirtland, and what was going on in Joseph's mind. I mean, we have the revelations, but there's just so much we don't know, but we can try to understand these things. Let's be clear, though. We're not trying to convince you that this is the
0: right way and that you need to get on board. The right way is the current system, one man, one woman, for eternity. But we are trying to understand Joseph's
1: day. Absolutely. So know that in 1830, 1831, Joseph Smith is wrestling with this because the Lord has him working on the Bible translation. And so even though the revelation of section 132 is given in July of 1843, Joseph probably knows about these things as early as 1830 in the winter or the beginning of 1831. There's enough evidence to suggest that he knew about this. And so in the timeline we give you, I find it interesting that in 1829, we have the translation of Jacob in June, where he knows That no more than one wife, that's the rule in the Book of Mormon. And then, after he's worked on the Bible, by 1832, and and dates are fuzzy on this, but sometime between 1832 and 1835, the Lord has commanded Joseph Smith to take a plural wife, and she is the niece of Levi Hancock. Levi Hancock is a faithful member of the church. He goes on Zion's camp. He serves in the kingdom, and his niece is this young woman by the name of Fanny Alger. We get this right from Saints, the history book that the church has produced in 2018. And so Joseph is commanded to live plural marriage in the Kirtland era. And part of this came from his translation of the Bible. And Joseph knew that sometimes God had commanded people to practice this principle, but he hadn't acted on this knowledge. And yet, in the course of time in Kirtland, an angel of the Lord commanded Joseph to marry an additional wife. And so after receiving the commandment, he struggled because Joseph obviously was averse to this idea. It went against his principles and it went against his ideals. But an angel urged Joseph to proceed instructing him to share the revelation about plural marriage only with people whose integrity was unwavering. And then the angel also charged Joseph to keep it private until the Lord saw fit to practice plural marriage publicly through his chosen servants. And so during the years that Joseph lived in Kirtland, this young woman named Fanny Alger worked in the Smith home, and Joseph knew her and her family well. And so her parents, who were also members of the church and were faithful, were approached by Levi Hancock. And Fanny accepted Joseph's teachings and his proposal. And according to Mosiah Hancock in his writings, Levi Hancock performed the ceremony. So since the time had not come to teach plural marriage in the church, Joseph and Fanny, they kept their marriage private as the angel had instructed them. But there were rumors that were spreading in Kirtland. Now, we don't know when they were married. Martin Harris puts the time period at about 1833 but there's other sources that put it at different time periods, and I don't know. So on the timeline, you'll actually see a question mark there. I don't know when the marriage took place, and we don't have all the details. One warning I do give when it comes to Fanny Alger is this. Probably the most famous story is the one told by William McClellan. And William McClellan interviews Emma long after the fact and talks to her, and then William McClellan goes and speaks about the connection that Joseph had to Fanny, And the reason why I reject William McClellan's testimony, there's a couple reasons. One of them is Emma doesn't talk about it. Like we don't have her side. The second thing is William McClellan hated Joseph Smith. In fact, there was a time when he wanted to beat Joseph Smith up when he was in bonds and really was just that kind of guy. Like William McClellan at one time was faithful, but later he wants to attack Joseph. So he's certainly an enemy. And so whenever it comes to some of these things, especially touchy things like plural marriage, I would always contend to go to faithful sources. And so I'm not going to get my history from William McClellan. But the story is told that Emma's looking through a keyhole, and then they tell the story of Joseph and Fanny. And I kind of like to liken that idea to church history. Church history is sometimes like looking through a keyhole, trying to get the facts, and we don't have all the facts from what we have historically. And a lot of this is coming to us from Levi Hancock that Joseph and Fanny were married. Now, this is where we get into Oliver's words. And he was very critical of the prophet Joseph. Essentially, Oliver had a falling out with Joseph not only over how to lead the church, but also about Fanny and whether or not Emma knew about the marriage at this time is uncertain. But this is one thing we know, that in time, Fanny does move away and she marries another man and lived apart from the body of the saints. Later, she gets a letter from her brother after Joseph's dead. And the brother asks her, he says to her, Fanny, tell me about your marriage to Joseph. And this is what she wrote. She said, that is a matter all of our own and I have nothing to communicate. And so welcome to history. I mean, there's just so much we don't know. But from the historical sources that I've read, they were married, and it is in Kirtland, and then we don't have any record of Joseph contracting uh, plural marriages until we get to the Nauvoo period in 1841. And so timeline-wise, in 1841 to 1844, when Joseph's killed, that's the time period when the bulk of those plural marriages are taught, that's when section 132 is given, and that's when the Quorum of the Anointed is initiated. And what that is, is it's a group of men and women who are in the close body of the saints. It's members of the Quorum of the Twelve, members, many of them of the Council of Fifty, and they are initiated into the ordinances of the temple, and Joseph teaches them about plural marriage. And out of this group— This is the main body that when the saints go west, these individuals, many of them are practicing plural marriage. So when the saints go west and they leave Nauvoo and they enter the Salt Lake Valley in 1847, we have about 196 men and 521 women who had entered into plural marriage. That kind of gives you a picture of the percentages. And there were about 20,000 members of the church in Nauvoo. So this is a very tight-knit group of saints. And these participants in these early plural marriages, they pledged to keep their involvement confidential, even though they anticipated that there would be a time when it would be publicly acknowledged. Another question we often get is, okay, so how many of the saints actually lived it in the late 19th century in Utah? And we don't know, but according to Flake in his record, he writes that at present, the best estimates of the numbers of polygamous families in the late 19th century range about 20 to 30%. And so there were individuals, clearly there were many that lived it, but it was not by and large the main experience for most Latter-day Saints. From my reading of history, it a lot of times existed among the leaders, specifically bishops, stake presidents, those on high councils. It wasn't the main experience for most people in the 19th century in Utah. Another question I often get is what were they thinking? Like what were these people thinking? They thought differently about sealing than we think. We're back to Spinoza. I don't want to ridicule or judge, but to understand them. And so, I have basically four things that they were thinking. First, many of them believed that the end was near. Remember how we talked about the prophecy to Joseph when you're 85? You know, that would be 1890. There were saints that lived in this time period, that thought the Savior was coming, and we've got to raise up seed. And so one of the ways they looked at this idea of raising up seed was, let's have as many children as we can, let's build the kingdom of God as quickly as we can, because the time is short. Now, obviously, I have the benefit of sitting here in 2021, and I can see that the Savior clearly didn't come. I don't interpret the verses that we read that the Savior said he would come. I look at them as the Savior saying, Joseph, I'm not going to tell you. That's kind of how I interpret it. But that doesn't mean my interpretation was their interpretation. The next one was the importance of following the prophet. And not just follow. Some of them saw this as a way of connecting themselves
0: to the prophet. This was a way of creating an eternal tie to the prophet. And that was appealing to a lot of them. They loved this man, and they followed him faithfully as a prophet But now they saw an opportunity to connect themselves to the prophet.
1: Yes. The third thing that they were thinking is the law of adoption. And on the slide, I write, this was taught everywhere in the history. And it really was. I mean, if you get into the weeds of 19th century Mormon history, the law of adoption was a big deal. And and the fourth thing they were thinking was this. The more wives and children I have, the more glory I have, the more exaltation I have. And that's really tied into the third thing that they were thinking, which was the law of adoption. So I'm going to do the best I can to explain it, the adoption theology by looking at a diagram that Orson Hyde drew that was actually in the millennial star. And it's also published in a book by Samuel Morris Brown, In Heaven as it is on Earth, Joseph Smith and the Early Conquest of Death, page 227. This diagram essentially shows a crown at the top with lines coming down. And every single line is a line down. It's almost like Amway. Um, Every single line is a line down from another father and mother to another line, another kingdom. And it kind of looks like a family tree. And the idea is, in this diagram, is that the more connections I have and the more children I have, the more glory I have. That's, in essence, what this graphic illustrates now, I'm going to talk about the law of adoption. And let's say I was going across the plains with Brigham Young and Bryce was going across too. And we kind of had our carts and our families and we're going. And we're super awesome missionaries. Let's just say everywhere we go, we teach people and they're like, oh, I want to join the church. And so Brigham looks at us and says, Mike, Bryce, I want to make you guys my son. And so we would be sealed to Brigham as his son. And he would be sealed to us as our father. And therefore, everybody that we have in our family, all of a sudden, let's say I have 10 children and Bryce has 10 children, Brigham now has 20 grandchildren. Now, this is called the law of adoption, and this is how the early saints are talking. We don't talk like this today, because today, Bryce is sealed to his dad, my children are sealed to me. And I'm sealed to my wife,
0: who's sealed to her parents, who are sealed to their parents. Yes. We're creating a net that goes horizontally, simply because we understand that those connections naturally happen. They seem to have been a little bit more deliberate in creating the connections horizontally. Yes. Well, we know that it just happens naturally, because I'm sealed to my son, who's sealed to his wife, who's sealed to her parents. And so the net just naturally expands. But in the early days of the church, that wasn't such a possibility. So it's a natural desire to expand the links, not just vertically up to my parents or down to my children, so I would have no problem linking to Mike and his family, so that I now have a horizontal link as well as a vertical
1: The adoption theory. Yes. There are so many quotes, and you can see them in the slides. I just want to read this one. This is Brigham Young. He says, I have gathered a number of families around me by the law of adoption and seal of the covenant according to the order of the priesthood, and others have done likewise, it being the means of salvation left to bring us back to God. He then explained that adoption would not be necessary if the keys of the priesthood had been handed down from father to son through all generations because, quote, all would have been legal heirs instead of being heirs according to the promise end quote adoption was the means of reconnecting the chain of the priesthood you see in brigham young's mind because joseph smith was the preeminent prophet of this dispensation and had keys given to him by angels being sealed to joseph would mean that I am sealed all the way back to God, that Joseph received keys and powers. If I'm sealed to him, then I'm connected into this family tree. And so after Joseph dies, many women get sealed to Joseph Smith as a wife. And this is just kind of how they understood adoption theology in this time period. And so this adoption theology to me is significant because it helps us understand what they were thinking which is the more wives and children you have, the more glory. And so many Latter-day Saints wanted to live plural marriage and have lots of children because they viewed this as an increase in their glory. I mean, if Heavenly Father glories in His children,
0: it made a natural connection in their heads that the more family I have, the more children I have, the more connections I have, even those that I've adopted in will bring
1: me an increase in glory as well. Now, Wilfred Woodruff changes it, and so there was a shift during his administration, and Jennifer Mackley wrote an excellent book about this idea called Wilfred Woodruff's Witness, The Development of Temple Doctrine. And the reason why I'm referencing this book is because what Mackley does is she lays out everything that was understood in Nauvoo, everything that was discussed when it comes to adoption theology, all the way up until Wilfred Woodruff. You see, during his administration, Wilfred Woodruff saw that the temple sealing and the law of adoption wasn't exactly right, that more revelation was needed to tie us back to the family of Adam. And so there was a shift during his administration where we stopped... Sealing ourselves to the prophet, because I want a guaranteed ticket
0: to the celestial kingdom, so let's seal ourselves to the prophet. And it's like, no, 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 it doesn't work that way, guys. Yes. So clearly, if we're trying to make all these connections and to bring our glory, it wouldn't surprise you then that some women would be married to one man for time, but want to be sealed to Joseph for eternity. Now, Current apostates are going to look at that and assume Joseph is stealing other men's wives, which doesn't pan out in the history. But if you understand this theory of adoption, that they're trying to increase their glory, increase their connections to to the human family, there were women that wanted to spend eternity with Joseph, not their married husband on earth. So Joseph will be sealed to women that are married to other men on earth. Right. And that's hard for us to contemplate when we see it through the eyes of earthly reasons for marriage or modern reasons for marriage, rather than
1: pull it out of the context of Joseph Smith's day. Yeah. There were time-only marriages, there were time-and-eternity marriages, and there were adoptive or dynastic or eternity-only marriages. Joseph Smith contracted all three types of marriages. Uh, to me, one of the best examples of a dynastic marriage is a woman by the name of Elizabeth Rollins Leitner. She was married to a non-member of the church. His name was Adam Leitner. And she was sealed to the prophet Joseph Smith, even though she was married to Adam Leitner. They don't live as husband and wife, but she's sealed to Joseph. Now we don't do this today in the church. If if you're married to a non-member, you're not going to get sealed to a member. Like we don't do this. But back then in Nauvoo, you know, there were those three types of marriages. There were time only, time and eternity, and adoptive, dynastic, or eternity only marriages. And to really uncover this and to see which type of marriage was which and which person was married to Joseph and when that's not the purpose of this podcast. If you go to Brian and Laura Hales's website and it's called Joseph Smith Polygamy and they are faithful members of the church and you just go to the introduction and you read what they, what they write is they kind of let the voices of these women be heard. I mean, for example, they give the voice of Eliza Partridge right there where it says nothing but a firm desire to keep the commandments of the Lord could have induced a girl to marry in that way. I thought my trials were very severe in this line. I mean, that's Eliza Partridge's voice. I think they give voice to these women, and they help to unpack types of marriages. They and talk they... about the invitations and how Joseph went about inviting
0: a woman. This idea that Joseph kind of groomed them and pulled them into his, you know, lure because of his connection to them, they really do unpack that. And they talk a lot about, no, this is how an invitation was made. There was no retaliation when the answer was no. And yes, the answer sometimes was no. One of the most intriguing stories for me is a woman, and I forget which one, said no to Joseph, and then Joseph was martyred. And in regret, she seals herself to Joseph after his death, even though she had said no while he was alive. It kind of resonated in her soul. And then after his death, she felt bad and went ahead and sealed herself to the prophet. So the beauty about all of this is you get to see from the actual person's perspective if you go visit the website, which I'd encourage you to do.
1: Yeah. Another example of a dynastic ceiling is Helen Mark Kimball. She marries Joseph and it's clearly a dynastic ceiling, meaning they don't live together as husband and wife. And the reason why I bring this up is because enemies of the church use her face and her name and her to, age and her age to sensationalize plural marriage. I think if you think about this, if someone can take religion and sensationalize it and make it something that it isn't, It draws lots of hits, and it becomes subject of memes and those kinds of things. And so, yes, she was 14 when she was sealed to the prophet Joseph Smith, but Helen Marr Kimball did not live with Joseph Smith as a wife. She was sealed to him. It was dynastic, but she later in 1846 marries Horace Whitney, And they have eight living children. And Helen Mar Kimball dies in Salt Lake City in 1896, a faithful and true member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Was she sealed to Joseph? Absolutely. Did they live together as husband and wife? They did not. But it's important to note that not having an understanding of some of the complexities of Nauvoo, understanding the law of adoption, understanding how they viewed the temple, and over time, how Wilfred Woodruff took the law of adoption, changes it and he made sure that we now seal parents to children and children to parents all the way back. Understanding that process and navigating history, to me, is important in understanding plural marriage as a whole. For me, it's important to study all that I can on this subject, and it's been one that I have intensely sought after to try to gain understanding, to learn more, not only about what was at stake and what happened, but how they contextualize these things, how they understood plural marriage. And so for me, as I understand where they're coming from, I may not agree with it because I'm looking at it through my cultural lens and my time period. I can understand where they are. And so I would encourage all of us to not be afraid to learn, not be afraid to talk about these things. It actually helps because Knowing church history can help us grapple with some of these things, and we can understand the arguments, because frankly, some of the arguments that people come at us with are not rooted in knowing the whole story, or they're talking about part of the story. Examining history through the lens of faith is important, and you can be faithful and be someone who knows church history. I just want to emphasize that. You can know the history of the church and still retain faith, faith in Christ, and faith in the individuals that took part in the restoration. And so to me, while plural marriage is certainly troubling, and there's a lot of things that don't make sense, of this I testify, that Joseph is the prophet of the restoration and that the church has been restored. If you're one of those listeners that really wants to know more about this, because we're briefly touching on this, Brian and Laura Hales have probably, in my estimation, done the greatest work on this subject. Absolutely. And they unpack the difficulties, and they really do help to explain these things. I mean, this podcast can only go so far. So once the saints get to Salt Lake City, we still don't publicly... Practice plural marriage. When we get here in 1847, we're just trying to survive. But by 1852, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints makes it public and we publish that we are practicing plural marriage. And then in the 1880s, the federal government comes at the church. The Civil War is now over, and so now they're not focused on the war campaign. And so the federal government comes. And they really come against the church, and they confiscate property. And so, at this time, in 1890, is when Wilford Woodruff gives official declaration one, declaring an end to plural marriages. It doesn't quite end that way. I mean, there are still some people practicing it. Some of the some saints go to Canada. Some saints go to Mexico and still practice plural marriage. Some even in the United States are practicing plural marriage and still contracting marriages. And so. Between 1890 and 1904, we have the Temple Lot case, which we've talked about, and so now we even have more testimony of people that have entered into this practice, and rumors are circulating, and a fellow by the name of Reed Smoot has been elected to be a senator. And in 1904, they have what are called the Reed Smoot hearings, where essentially Members of the Senate are questioning whether Reed Smoot, who's a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, he's an apostle, whether or not he should be Uh, qualified to be a U.S. senator. And in the course of time, in the Reed-Smoot hearings, it comes out that some saints are still living plural marriage. And so the church issues in 1904 what's called a second manifesto, which says, guys, we're not kidding. We're done living plural marriage. And since about 1890 to 1904, depending on how you read history, since that time period... If you're a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and you enter into plural marriages, you're now not a member anymore. You will be removed from the roles of the church. And so I always like to tighten up the history and say we publicly practiced plural marriage from 1852 to 1890, and that's almost 40 years. I want to close out reading this short excerpt from Brian and Laura Hales' book, Joseph Smith's Polygamy Towards a Better Understanding because I think this is important as well in defending the, the good name of the prophet Joseph, this is what they write. Despite their very lives after Nauvoo, it seems striking that none of Joseph Smith's plural wives ever accuse him of abuse or deception, including the seven who did not gather to Utah with the main body of the church. Decades after their feelings had matured and their youthful perspectives had expanded by additional experiences with marriage and sexual relations, none of them ever claimed that they were victimized or beguiled by the prophet Joseph. And so I end with that idea. We don't know so much about what went on because so little was spoken about this. But from what we do know, those sisters who were involved with Joseph. In whatever degree of plural marriage that took place, none of them accused him of wrongdoing. And I think that's important. I certainly don't understand all the aspects of plural marriage, but I also see that these things are happening in the Bible, and I see that they're happening in this early period of church history, and I, for one, am grateful that that's not something that I have to deal with, but I honor their sacrifice. And I see... That as they lived the gospel and as they tried to incorporate these ideas, it drew a line of distinction between members of the church and those outside of the church. And then when you add that with the geographic isolation that many members of the church felt as they came to Utah in 1847, both that geographic and social isolation caused the church, in essence, to become even more faithful and even more unified as a body to work together to build Zion. And you add to that the increase in numbers of children, and the church did grow rapidly in this time period when the church was living plural marriage. Polygamy is certainly troubling, and there's so much in my mind that doesn't make sense. But the one thing that I do know, it's that Joseph was a prophet, and that we are part of the restored church of Jesus Christ. Yeah. This man was an
0: honorable man. We ought to judge it through the eyes of those who practiced it and those who were there and were around Joseph. And if you read their eyewitness accounts, they loved Joseph. I have spent my whole life studying his teachings, his words, his example, and I hope to be a tenth the man that he was in the eyes of God. It doesn't surprise me that Brigham Young's final three words were, Joseph, Joseph, Joseph. If you struggle with plural marriage, it's understandable. We've given you some resources. We hope we've answered some questions. But we want to be clear. We stand behind the prophet Joseph, testify of his words, testify of his divine calling, and know him to be a good, honorable prophet of God. And with that, we'll kind of end this discussion, and we'll see you next week when we get prepared and get close to the martyrdom of the Prophet Joseph Smith. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.